Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. I'd like to start this week's episode with a game of Would You Rather. Would you rather study at Oxford for three years but not receive a degree? Or receive an Oxford degree without attending any lectures, taking any exams, or writing any essays? The education or the qualification? Quite a lot of you probably chose the qualification. Even those of you who chose the education probably thought twice before doing so. According to this week's guest, that is evidence of just how flawed our education system is. Brian Kaplan is an economics professor at George Mason University. His new book is The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Brian's book does what it says on the tin, and I spoke to him about his controversial argument and why, as an academic, he spends so much time doing something he thinks is so futile. So how did you come to such a sort of provocative um, uh, point of view? Well, I mean, I, th- I would say that it started when I was about five years old and began school. I've been in the education system for 40 years. I've just seen so much waste of not just student time, tons of that, but also just taxpayer resources and wanted to go and blow the whistle on the system. So that's what I do in this book. And, and let's just sort of lay out what your, your basic thesis is. Um, it's not that on an individual level, it doesn't make sense to go to school or to college. It's a it's, it's a broader point about uh, the sort of resources we spend as a society on education and and the benefits we get from that. Yeah, exactly. So the heart of the book is what's called the signaling model of education, and this all goes back to there's really two different ways that education could make you richer. There's the obvious one where you go to school and you learn some useful skills, and then you're able to produce more stuff, and then when you finish, people want to pay you more. Right, that's called human capital. That's obvious. I mean, it's definitely part of the story. But I say that it's a that it's a much smaller part of the story than people think. And the larger part is very different version. This says you go to school, you jump through a bunch of hoops. The hoops themselves don't teach you anything you're likely to use again. But jumping through the hoops is impressive, and it's a way that you convince employers that you're smart, that you're hardworking, that you're conformist. Right. In other words, you go and get stamps in your forehead saying this is a grade A prime worker. Right now, selfishly speaking, it doesn't really matter why education pays, whether you learn skills or whether you just convinced employers of your skill. But from a social point of view, it matters tremendously because if people are learning actual skills, then they produce the extra income that they earn. But on the other hand, if what you're doing is jumping through hoops to show off, well, you can't have a whole economy based upon people showing off to each other. That doesn't make the world richer. 
So that's, you know, again, that's really the heart of it. It says that even though education is for many people financially a very good deal, but for society, it's really only a good deal if you're learning useful stuff. And I say, if you really look at the curriculum, most of what people study, they're not going to use after graduation. So you don't actually dispute, if you read the, if you look at figures that sort of try to point out the financial benefit of going to college, for instance, uh, in terms of what it does to your salary. You're not, you're not disputing those numbers. Uh, well, so I do say that, that the simple numbers are overstated for a bunch of reasons. And especially I say that it's a big mistake to use the averages to predict what's going to happen to someone who what, didn't do very well in high school. Right. So, you know, a key fact about college, especially is the completion rates are shockingly low. Mm-hmm. So, you know, only about 40% of full-time college students finish in four years you know, mm-hmm. so maybe 55% finish in five years, but then there's a big group that just don't finish. Uh, and if you if you're trying to predict who will and will not finish, this you know as usual the best predictor of past of future performance is past performance. So the best predictor of whether you're going to finish college is how well you did in high school. So I do say that college is a bad investment for people who were only so-so in high school, mm-hmm. just because they're not that likely to actually finish. And this is amplified by the fact that so much of the benefit of all levels of education is crossing the finish line, is graduating. So, I mean, especially for college, that you know, finishing that last year is worth almost twice as much in percentage terms, or actually over twice as much in percentage terms as the first three years combined. So, you and actually, you make the point in the book that, that the, the fact that your final year and actually getting the piece of paper graduating from college is worth so much more than the other years sort of sort of proves not necessarily proves but is it's a good chunk of evidence for the signaling theory that it's not yeah, about just precisely you know, like, like if you were, if the reason why school paid was purely that you were learning skills it would be very odd if the first 3 years of college or high school paid very little and the last year offered you a big bag of money right because then you say well what are they doing are they withholding the really useful classes until senior year I mean, at least in the United States, the stereotype's the opposite. Senior year is goof-off year, not finally learn some job skills year, right? But on the other hand, if what you're doing is signaling conformity to social expectations, and you know, certainly in the U.S., there's a very strong expectation on you, a lot of pressure on you from parents, teachers, peers, that you graduate. It's the magical act of graduation. And again, so in a society where people put a lot of emphasis on that, if you don't do it, you're basically spitting in the face of social norms and employers judge you harshly and say, there's a nonconformist. There's a person that doesn't do what he's supposed to do, which makes me nervous about hiring him for a job that's, uh, that's well-paid and requires a lot of effort and responsibility. But you're not, I guess the, uh, the defenders of education, if they were, if they were to come back at you on some of this, uh, they would probably, the first thing they would say is that, yes, there are some things. Yeah. Yes. You know, it, learning Latin at school may not be something you ever use in your job, almost regardless of what you do other than if, if you become a Latin teacher, right? But but in and amongst the kind of less essential stuff is some stuff with it, without which we really, um, we really can't survive out there. So, I mean, literacy and numeracy, for example, I mean, how do you square those things with, with, with the claim that, that education is a waste of time? Yeah, so you, there's a waste of time and money, namely that... You know, we, we are wasting hundreds of billions of resources, and there's a waste of time where every single penny or every single minute is a waste. So, um, you know, in a, in a subtitle, there is a, an ambiguity between the two. But, mm. you know, like what I do in the book is just try to come up with the numbers. You know, I crunch the numbers. So, like, what is the social payoff uh, and the social payoff of doing another year of education? So, you know, if we just go and compare the benefits that you're getting, which, you know, like, like you know, even the very worst degree, you get something out of it. 
well, it'd be a miracle if you didn't get a little bit out of it. Yeah. But if you just compare the extra gains that you're getting, and especially the extra gains the society is getting, to the cost, that's where I say that it just isn't worth it. Uh, so, in other, in other words, you know, you could go and you know open a business and you could make minimum wage, and then then someone says, hey, this business is a waste of time and money, and you say, well, no, it's not because I'm making minimum wage here. He says, yeah, but you could have been doing something else with your time. You could have been making a lot more money with a lot less stress. So I say that's that's the sense in which I am very you know I you know I stand by the subtitle, saying that when you go and look at when you actually evaluate it as investment, the gains we're getting just aren't worth the costs. And what about the argument that you know there's there's, there's, there's you're taking a very narrow look at the the utility of an education, mm-hmm. and that uh, and again I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but uh, yeah, that, you know. Yeah. Um, Education is about more than just hard skills or even soft skills you learn for the for the workplace. It's also about building citizens and rounded people who, you know, have an appreciation of, you know, let's say, take an example, like studying history doesn't necessarily make you a better accountant, but it would it would make you a better citizen, arguably, and a, and a, and, a, and, a, and maybe a, a more, you know, there's, there's, there's non-professional reasons to do that. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite questions. First thing to realize is that it's not just economists who have a narrow view of education; it's also students. Mm-hmm. So there are there are there are surveys of, of college students, especially. Why are you here? What do you hope to accomplish? And the overwhelming answers are to make more money and get a better job. So it's not just a few money grubbing economists sitting in their offices who are ramming this perspective down the throats of the students. This is what the students themselves think. So it's a it's actually a very widespread view. Right. And I mean, you know, like a thought experiment, imagine that college offered no financial gain whatsoever. How many people would still be here? How many students would still bother to come if it were clear to them that there were no financial or career gains of being a, of, of getting a college degree? I mean, like, I would be amazed if even 10 percent of the students continue to come. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, so it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. And and like the, they're not very interested in academics, frankly. So if you didn't weren't dangling these big financial benefits in front of them, I don't think that most of them, I think a large majority of them would not be here. All right, now you might say, yeah, yeah well, that's you know their problem, and we need to take a broader a broader point of view. And that's where I say, well, in principle, I'm totally open to that. But just saying that school could teach citizenship is a far cry from showing that it actually does. So I've got a whole chapter, chapter nine in the book where I actually go over all the evidence on these broader social effects of education. How much does it really transform people? And my main answer is much less than people imagine. All right, so the actual change in people's views on politics, for example, you get from education are just, are, are just, are just very small compared to what people would think. Same goes for almost all of the touted effects of education. You know, just things like opening your minds to people's minds to ideas and culture. You know, you know, there you can just see like how little in how little people t- how little time people voluntarily spend watching you know opera or reading philosophy uh, when they, when it's not really assigned for a class. It's just stuff that doesn't you know, you know basically school fails to actually convince people that uh, that high culture and ideas are actually interesting, except of course for a very small number of people. Um, and I should, I should I should I should point out to listeners that this uh, this is not you making an argument for. Philistinism. I mean, you yourself are inter- interested in these things. It's just yeah, yeah, of, of course. So mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like you know, personally, like I am a big, a big, you know, high culture and uh, abstract ideas person. Yeah, but but we should still judge the system based upon what it really accomplishes, not what we'd like it to accomplish. It's surprising 
to think you you sort of still work as an economics professor given uh, given your conclusions. What explain what that's like? Yeah, so I mean, like you know, as I said, I do see myself as a whistleblower. So I mean, it would weigh on my conscience to let taxpayers keep keep wasting their money without at least letting them know. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of what it's like, I mean, honestly, like it's a dream job for life. You know, like I get paid to do pretty much whatever I want. Uh, so I mean, that thing, you know, and that's not just me. That's the life of any tenured professor, basically. Um, you know, like often I will just describe, you know, like what is it to be a tenured professor? It's to have a dream job for life where you get a nice middle class or even better salary in exchange for working on whatever interests you. Um, so, I mean, like, like people say, well, why do you do, why do you do this? And I say, well, because it's really fun and I enjoy it and, and it's, you know, it's rewarding for me. Uh, but I do at least want to let taxpayers know what's going on. So like, you know, and say, well, do you guys feel like you're getting ripped off? I think you probably would if you really knew what was happening. But you say that, um, you know, the other sort of depressing thing is just how take economics, which is your subject, just how little economic students actually understand of economics. You know, and that's after obviously after their classes. If you look at just the numeracy and literacy tests that you cite in your book, that the the scores are actually quite bad okay. among college graduates I mean, in America. You know, I mean, you know, so I, I teach economics. I am one of the one of the professors who loves teaching. My teaching evaluations say that I'm really good. But then I look out in my classrooms and see in the middle of the semester only half the students are there. So how good could I really be? Right? So it seems like this, you know, like even when the students say that I'm a, that I'm a very good professor, they in fact would rather be doing a hundred other things other than listening to me. When I go and read the exams, what I can see, what I see is the students are not showing up because they understand the material perfectly already. They're not <laughs> right, and mm-hmm. you know, rather they're they're not showing up because they think that they can just get good enough grades to get their job, uh, you know, and that, you know, and, and that, that's all they're really after. So yeah, so when I read the exams, uh, you know, like there, there's always a few students who really impress me and I say, you know, for them it was worthwhile. But then the large majority of students, when I look at the exams, like they only know the very most basic stuff, you know, they sort of look for a few keywords in the question and then talk about the general topic. They don't really understand the material. In the, in the way they could apply it to the real world. And this is on the day of the final exam, so imagine how little they know in a year or two. Uh, but yeah, and then in terms of literacy and numeracy, uh, yeah, so you know, there's something called the National Assessment of Adult Literacy in the U.S. where mm-hmm. you go and look at how good adults are at you know, re- basically a reading, writing, and math. And, you know, and when you go and see like, you know, how, like, how literate and numerate are college graduates in America, it's basically what you would intuitively expect for a high school graduate. Right, you know, they can read, but when you give them more complex tasks like, explain, you know, here's an op-ed, explain the position of the op-ed writer and his top two arguments. Say, you know, there's a lot of college graduates who just don't seem to be able to do that. Uh, so, if we accept then these, um, your, your basic theory that that it doesn't add much value, uh, specifically, you know, in particular higher education, uh, college. Because of what, if you look at the, you know, the the process you describe of kind of qualification inflation and the the, the way in which it still makes sense on an individual level to go to college as a way of signaling to your future employer that you are someone they should hire. How do you, how do you turn this trend around? I mean, how is this ever going to, um, how is this ever going to change? Right. So I say, you know, by far the most important thing is to cut government spending on education. Right, so government is the main funder of education, and government does indeed make education affordable for almost everybody, right? Uh, but that's bad. <laughs> right? that, that's the that's the main thing that I'm saying is that 
you really like again, like if you think of, of education as, as just teaching useful skills, then what I'm saying seems horrible because it's you know then you're you know, like you're denying the opportunity to the individual and useful contribution to society. But on the other hand, if my story is uh, is right, that most of what students are doing is not learning useful skills; they're mostly just jumping through hoops to impress employers. Then, if you were to go and make education a lot less affordable, this would mean there'd be a lot less of it. But the result would ju- would simply be that you can get a job with with less education. Right. So, you know, like what you're, what you're calling qualification in, uh, inflation, where you mm-hmm. need more degrees just to get a job than you did in the past, where you might need a college degree to get at the same job that your dad got with a high school degree. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if greater access has caused credential inflation, then I say reduced access will cause credential deflation. And furthermore, you know, people immediately start getting very stressed out about the distributional effects. What about a poor kid who can't afford the education? And here, you know, here I say that. You know, if you just think about what it's like to be a high school dropout today versus 50 years ago, the stigma is vastly worse now. Yeah. Why? Because so few people fail to finish. You know, so few people fail to finish high school that it's really considered a very bad mark against you. Whereas in a society where that were a lot more common, then it doesn't really have you know have you know, it doesn't have the same kind of neg of negative judgment that's built into it. So again, what I say is, whenever we're thinking about fairness, we should think about fairness to everyone. Not just to the key people that would have do, that do well in the current system, but the people who do poorly in the current system. And how do you how do you fit in um, other types of education into this? So, for instance, I mean, something that's a constant issue in the UK is uh, how to improve vocational training and teach hard skills for for jobs. Uh, I mean, is that something you do? You, do you draw a distinction between that and? kind of the yeah, academy. Yeah, yeah, and... ab- absolutely. So out of all the ways we're forming the curriculum, I think vocational education is the most promising. So I've got a whole chapter on this. Uh, so, you know, there's been a good amount of research on vocational education. And first big result is that selfishly speaking, students probably don't do enough of it. Right. So, you know, like the you know, like just a typical student, even a college bound student, it seems like they actually get some useful stuff out of vocational education, if only uh, just you know, just learning to you know, like, like how to, how to how to actually do a job and just getting acclimated to uh, you know to employment, uh, and then other students who actually learn a specific trade, you know, like even better for them, right? So selfishly speaking, underrated, but socially speaking, greatly underrated because the whole idea of vocational education is to train people to do something they're really going to do. So I say that's you know, like you know, very little of that is going to be signaling. That's going to instead primarily be actual building of human capital. So I say from a taxpayer's point of view, training someone to be a plumber is way better than sending them to college to learn poetry. You know, the, you know, the poet, he very well may get a good office job at the end, but it's not because he studied poetry. It's because, you know, not because he's going to use poetry at that job. It's because he jumped through a bunch of hoops and impressed employers and showed off, got my Oxford degree in poetry or whatever it is. <laughs> so I say, you know, like yeah. plumber is, you know, like plumber is just a better investment because it actually changes what he's able to do. And and so if you were going for a kind of um, you know Brian Kaplan light version of the reforms to the education system, they would be sort of if, you know if, if, okay if you're not going to scrap education spending or drastically cut it, at least shift it away from um, away from to take your example poetry and towards plumbing and um, other other skilled you know hard skills. Yeah, right. So I mean, like obviously, I'm not crazy enough to think Pete that my book is going to go and change policy all over the world dramatically. You know, I'd be happy if I were able to cause a 1% reduction in, in, in spending on education. I think that would be actually an amazing accomplishment for one book, just to cut education spending by 1% in any in any country, in any major country, or much less all over the planet. 
So, I mean, if I could just add a little intellectual heft to people who, who say, let's let's just go and try to be a little bit more careful with taxpayers' money, I'd be really satisfied with that. But yeah, yeah, for any given dollar spending, I think that vocational education, uh, where we are, looks like the better bet. Uh, you know, be a better investment for social, social, social resources, absolutely. Again, probably for the individual student, too. And just to move it into the kind of straight political arena, you're actually arguing, obviously, you're arguing uh, about the education system uh, from a professor's point of view, from a student's point of view. But if you take it to a policymaker's and politician's point of view, you're actually also saying, you know, there's no relationship between between growth, productivity, all these other all these things we're, we're supposed to be, um, you know, uh, policymakers are trying to boost. There's no relationship between those and the amount we spend on education. Right. Well, I mean, I think the fair summary of the research is that is there's a, a vastly smaller connection than people think. Right. In the data, there are a few papers that actually find exactly what you're finding, but... You know, I'm not someone who goes and tries to find the one paper that's most extremely on my side and then raises it up and says, this is the paper. I try to go and collect all the research and then give a fair summary of it. That's what I really honestly strive to do, right? And what I would say is that the, you know, the, so, you know, the, the effect of, uh, of education on a society or the effect of, it, of you know, national education on a national economy is much smaller than the effect of personal education on, on a personal economy. Right. So, yeah, again, you know, like a pretty reasonable, a really reasonable estimate is that, you know, on average, a year of education will raise an individual's earnings by about 10 percent. But it looks like if you raise a country's education level by a full year, only raises the country's income by about 2 percent. So you know, basically, it looks like the, the, the benefit for an individual is about five times what it is for the, for the society. And this means that, well, the, that the gain that you're getting, again, is so small that it's just not worth the investment that we're putting in. But is that true? Is that true kind of across the development spectrum, if you said? I mean, I mean, it may be true now we're dealing with a country like America where, even though you report all sorts of problems with it, the, the basic level of literacy and numeracy is... is is quite high, you know, does the same apply to a developing country where those numbers are much lower and where education spending is much lower? Right, right. So this is an average taken over, you know, you know lots of different countries, you know, rich countries as well as poor countries. Again, the data is better for rich countries, of course. So that is a reason to focus more on it. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, so the, the, the actual quality of education that you get in a lot of poor countries is so crummy that it's not clear that it actually is better, that the year of education does more for them. So, you know, like, like, for example, in India, there's a notoriously high rate of teacher absenteeism. So that means that you could actually send students in India to school for one more year, but what are the, they're not really learning very much, even in terms of literacy and numeracy, because you know, essentially there's a lot of teachers who just take the government money and then don't show up. Right. Uh, you, know, you know, shockingly. And this is a problem, you know, like, over most of the third world. So, I mean, it does seem reasonable to, to me to say that if the teachers actually did their job, then there would be a much bigger payoff for getting another year of education in a poor country than a rich country. But given how poorly things actually work in poor countries, then actually it's not clear after all, because again, you have to always be thinking a little like, like, you know, like how does that, like what will the spending actually accomplish in the real world, not go and stack the decks by saying, well, if the teachers showed up and everyone were involved, then what would happen? Well, that's only like, that's only a reasonable way to think about it if those uh, suppositions are true, which, in, like in general, they're not. I'm 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One of the interesting things about this book um, is you're arguing basic I think you're basically arguing against the most platitudinal accepted political point of view which is that um you know education spending is good and uh you know kids are the future and so on and so forth um yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I, I could have subtitled it a, a bunch of um, against a bunch of educational platitudes but you are but so you, but i mean you know you're arguing against saying that basically every politician would agree a viewpoint every politician would agree with and and yet, the, you know, and I think you do so quite persuasively. And yet, you, the the numbers you use are not, as you as you pointed out, they're not. Um, you know, you, you make a real effort to use the the same numbers that you know everyone in this debate and and everyone looking at the education system is using. It's not like you've taken a drastically different measure of education. I think it's important that people realize that it's not a. It's not you're not you're not looking at it through a completely different lens to every other. Um, person who's ever looked at education. These are the same numbers. Right. Well, and so you know, say the lens. The lens is different because there's the signaling lens. But the, right. but you know what I'm looking at is I think basically the same. And the main difference in what I'm doing, what almost everyone else does, is I try to try to read everything. I mean, I like you know it's an impossible goal, but still you know like you know standard thing for economists who work in education to do is to, is just to read. Well, what what do my fellow economists say about this? Mm-hmm. Standard thing for for a psychologist. What do my fellow psychologists say say about it? Sociologists. What will a sociologist say? Education researchers. You know, which is a separate field. Uh, you know, in department, you know, there are you know, like schools, schools of education. They read fellow education researchers. I really try to read all, you know, all four fields, uh, to, you know, to read broadly and deeply in all of them, and to snap them all together. And then again, to look at it through this lens and says, look, if we look if we get all this information together, and we just try to say, well, how much of education or the, the gain of education is caused by building skills, and how much just by signaling. That's really where, where, where I'm coming from. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go and say, here's you know, some weird data set that no one else in the world uses and only I construct it personally. Yeah, like, like you, know, you know, people would be fools to believe me if that were what I were saying. But try to be really, you know, try to just do a really broad review of the evidence. And then to say, if we keep in mind that there are two explanations for what's going on, which one fits the facts better? I think another thing that's interesting about, about, your, about this debate in your book is that it's sort of one of those arguments that 
it's it's very controversial argument to make in a book and um it's an it's and for a you know economics professor to be making the argument it's not actually such a controversial argument if you think about sort of the dinner table the 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 british middle class dinner table i think it's quite i think you'd you find you know you anecdotally come across tons of people who would say um my three years at university were a lot of fun but they they aren't they weren't especially important yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. So, you know, I, I do also just want to take firsthand experience very seriously in this book. This is something researchers are usually very loath to do, and, you know, sometimes with good reason. So if people only have five minutes of firsthand experience with something, then, yeah, they probably don't really know very much. But what I say is for education, it's a different story because almost every reader of the book will have over 10 years of firsthand experience. So I think it'd be it's absurd to think that they don't actually learn something you know, something insightful about their experiences when they spend that long in a school, right? So you know, mm-hmm. I, I see, you know, and, and see, I'll, I'll, you know, a big part of the book is where I just try to draw people's attention to facts that you could really almost not fail to know if you'd spent that much time in school. Just things like students seem a lot more focused on their grades than on actual learning, which doesn't make sense if you think you're there if if either people go to school in order to learn skills. But it makes a lot of sense if you think they're going there to get a sticker on their forehead, right? So if you can find the really easy Latin teacher who will give you your A-levels or whatever in exchange for almost no work, then you can can look just as impressive as someone who actually had to master Latin during that time. And since you'll never use it again, like, why wouldn't you want to have the easy person, uh, you know, the easy grader to be the, the instructor? You know, or, you know, something else that's very striking to me is that... You know, people in the U.S. complain you know, endlessly about the very high cost of college, and, and I say, you know what? Suppose you want to go to Princeton. Princeton's actually completely free. And people look at me like I'm crazy. I say, look, if you want to go to Princeton, just move to the town and start attending classes. No one's going to stop you. There's no ID check. In fact, if you go to the professor and say, I'm not really a student here. Do you mind if I take, take the class anyway? Nor professor's normal reaction is, is elation and like get a tear in the eye saying no one has ever asked me that before no one has ever wanted to actually listen to me listen to what i have to say and learn my teachings before thank you for making my life meaningful so there's just one thing you'll be lacking at the end of four years of unofficial education and that's any you know any well you know and that's that's a degree like no no grades you know like no no official admission you were ever there so now it may be that you could get still get some job out of that, but it's going to be tough, right? So the you know, thought experiment I often ask people is, would you rather have a Princeton education with no diploma or a Princeton diploma with no education, mm-hmm. right? And I say, look, if you have to think about that, you already agree with me, right? Right? Because you know, can contrast if you were stuck in a desert island and you could either know how to build boats but not have a boat building degree, or you could have a, have a boat building degree but not know how to make boats. Which one do you want in a desert island? Right. You know, you, you know what you want. You want to be able to make boats. You don't care. Well, your degree won't save you, but boat building will. So there's a world of difference between what the the like you know the, the, like making a choice between a degree and knowledge on a desert island and making a choice that same choice in a modern economy. Right. And and then so what? I guess another objection uh, or response, at least to your to your argument for kind of cutting funding and, and so on. Would be that you know yes even if you say yes you're right about your basic point about the education system for for students but this kind of yes it's a racket but it's a, it's a racket that works quite well for subsidizing important research and subsidizing smart people like you to uh, sit, sit sit around all day and um, come up with bright ideas 
I mean, you know, like here, here I would say, you know, the, the social value of the research varies very widely. So, you know, like, like I mean, it's, you know, like, I mean, like if you were to just go and look at almost all research that's going on in the humanities, I can't imagine that many people would defend that as socially worthwhile. In terms of social science, again, like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, there, there's there's a few things that are going on that are really good, but I mean, most of it, again, I would just say, is stuff that has almost no actual application in the real world. You know, like, you know, like, so I mean, I would encourage people to just go and take a look at stuff that actually gets published in academic journals in a lot of fields and to see, can you imagine this ever actually having broader social use? Now, in actual, you know, like 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 hard science and engineering, then I think it's a you know a tougher question. But again, that's where I'd say, look, if you think that's really the valuable stuff, subsidize that stuff and don't go and waste it on a hundred other things that aren't actually delivering and where it's hard to imagine they ever would. I mean, like, what's the best thing that could possibly come from Shakespeare scholarship? Like, what's like, 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 like you know, the best case scenario? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, we get it. We get the best book about Shakespeare ever. And then what? All right. right. So, I mean, and would the, could the best book about Shakespeare ever be worth as much as two Shakespeare plays? Right. So it just it just seems like that, that that's a real stretch. Now I mean, I, I would actually go further and just say that you know you know you know two things. So one is that there has actually been quite a bit of research on does raising education levels actually like raise economic growth or anything like that. And again, people want to believe that, but it's been pretty hard to actually find the evidence for that. Right. And then yeah. the other thing is that when you really look at universities, it seems that a big fa- a big thing that's going on is the people who would have worked in industry coming up with practical applications of ideas instead work on things that are uh, that are of solely academic interest so again it's easy to say well basic research is the best thing because again there's you know some basic research which leads to you know fruitful you know, fru- you know, fru- fruitful social gains but there's other stuff that's so abstract so removed from any practical thing that again it would be very surprising so you know if, if it if it did actually lead to any payoffs I mean, I will say I know a lot of really smart people who have gone into academia, and that's sort of the last society we'll ever hear of them because they just work on something that's of interest only to them, right? And right. since they're subsidized and there's no customers, there's no employer saying, I don't see the use of this, then they can do a whole career just working on stu- working on their own pet projects. Whereas if these same people were, you know, did not have these cushy government jobs or you know cushy subsidized jobs anyway, a lot of them would actually go into industry and be doing stuff that's more useful. Right. So if that if that's the um, if these if these are the sort of macro um, and policy uh, arguments or, or lessons rather from from your from your book, what what lessons are there on an individual level? If you're if you're a bright um, high school graduate listening to this, yeah, yeah. So in terms of bright high school graduate, mm-hmm. if, you know, if you're just trying to selfishly max out your career, then mm-hmm. you're do, you're basically doing the right thing already. Right. right? You've already intuited this intuited the you know the, the way the system works. Again, you know, if I were giving a bit more advice, I would say that. You know, low earning majors, unless you, you know, have some, you know, like ama- amazing ability to actually get a job in those low earning majors, or if you just love the love those topics, then again, probably that's not a good idea. So, you know, so you know, basically, you know, like like you know, fine arts or archaeology, something like that. Uh, if you know, so, for those, I would say, look, do you really love those subjects beyond anything else? And, you know, and you say, yes, all right, well, then maybe it's a, maybe it's not a bad choice for you then. And or like, how about like, are you like, like best of the best in these areas? So you actually think that you could really get a job in, in, uh, in fine arts or archaeology. And maybe it's maybe it's a good, good path for you. But you know, otherwise, I would say focus more on higher earning majors. You know, it doesn't have to be engineering, you know, like, you know, like even like the middle earning majors like business, uh, you know, the, those, uh, you know, look, look like, you know, pretty good investments overall. Uh 
Yeah, so, you know, and, and then, like, you know, if you want to get really cynical, I, I could say, mm-hmm. well, like, now the understand signaling, you can really game a system, search even harder for the ECAs, you know, just try, uh, you know, you know, try looking around even more <laughs> for people that, uh, you know, you know, that, that will just give you great signals in exchange for very little work. Um, yeah, so, so there's so that. You're, you're, Again, you're, probably you're, not complete, you're not a complete cynic, are you, but... To parents of kids that have not been good and uh, not to do what do well in high school, yeah. and to say, look, you know, like this is probably not going to work out, even selfishly speaking. So you should really look around for some non-college thing that your kid is good at and likes. Right. It's a very cynical, uh, cynical way of seeing things. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I mean, a big part of my approach is someone asks me an honest question, I give them an honest answer, and yeah, I, I don't sit around worrying too much about whether they will abuse what I've taught them. Mm-hmm. Again, partly I just think people are are you know are, are already so cynical. I don't see that I'm really doing much harm. But yeah, I mean, also I do want to have an ironclad reputation for just you know for like give, for giving very blunt, clear answers based upon a calm viewing of educational reality. Right? Oh, well, that's certainly like, yeah, that's certainly the, I, that certainly comes through in the book. Uh, Brian Kaplan, author of the Case Against Education. Thanks a lot for talking to us, and uh, good luck yeah. with the book.